This is a Vault Studios production. Every unsolved case leaves a vacuum of unanswered questions. And that's especially true when a child is at the center of the investigation. Tonight, our Shane McAllister and the Unsolved team take you to Hazard, Kentucky, where a six-year-old boy... Back in 2018, I covered a decades-old unsolved case from the city of Hazard in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. Coal country, about 200 miles away from my home in Louisville. It's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive, and when I finally got there, I met up with a master trooper with the Kentucky State Police. Trooper, Master Trooper Jody Sims with Kentucky State Police Post 13 in Hazard. Trooper Sims had agreed to show me around the city, which calls itself the Queen City of the Mountains. It's a tiny community by Louisville standards, but up in this part of the state, with a population of around 5,000, it's the biggest city around. A cluster of buildings and houses zigzagging out from a main street, and then slowly disappearing into a seemingly endless expanse of rolling green mountains on all sides. Uh, it's it's extremely rural, uh, rough terrain. You have uh, steep mountains uh, all around you, uh, narrow uh, dirt, gravel roadway, creeks. It's, it's just very, uh, it's a very rough terrain. Trooper Sims led me out of town, up into the mountains, to a remote hollow about 30 miles away, where a few houses peeked out between folds of a forest on either side of a winding gravel road. And, and it's, that, has, that uh, landscape has changed over the years, but, but at that time you still probably had a lot of, uh, if you want to call it clannish, um, um, communities uh, where several, several families live in very close proximity. Uh, in the mountains, the people are still pretty, uh, pretty close-knit um, and, and would stick together a lot of times in, in thick or thin. Um, and, but, and a lot of those ties still bind together, but, but it's, not, it's a little bit different than it used to be. But just looking back in 1982, uh, it, it was still a lot, of, a lot of what we see today as far as roads that are paved. Uh, this is one of probably the few roads uh, to mine that are probably still has gravel. With Sim's help, I was able to match old video footage I'd brought with me to the scenery as it exists now. And I realized we'd made it to our destination. A property where, in the winter of 1982, a little boy stepped outside to play and never came home. Post 13 received a call from Knott County Rescue Squad advising that they were uh, in the Pine Tree Hollow uh, road in the Larks Lane community of Knott County with a possible missing person, uh, missing child incident. My name is Shay McAllister. And I'm Madison Wade. We're both journalists, and for years we've been covering unsolved cases on TV, talking to investigators and families of victims, all pushing for answers. Cases we haven't forgotten and still want to see solved. This is Beyond Bardstown, Unsolved. Today, we're talking about the mysterious missing persons case of Kelly Holland Jr. out of Kentucky. Shay, this case really has a lot of twists and turns, and you actually talked to a key person in this case. Right, Madison, we talked to Kelly Holland Jr.'s mother, who is the last person we know who saw the little six-year-old alive. And so she is a key person when it comes to exactly what might have happened that night. She's also been involved in the investigation over the years. 
So tell me about this six-year-old boy. What, what do we know about him? So what we know about little Kelly Holland Jr. is what we've gathered from what looks like a school photo. So he's just a little boy, brown hair. It kind of swoops over the front of his face. He has a big smile and he has a cleft palate. So you have a, he has a little bit of a scar on the left side of his face between his nose and his upper lip. It, we only have this one picture of him, but he just looks like your typical little boy, the type that's going to run out of the house and play. He's in a blue striped sweater and with a little collared shirt underneath it. We think it must be some sort of school photo. Now it's actually the photo used in NamUs. So the actual group for missing and unidentified people, it's the picture that they use as they try to look for him. And now we are here in 2022. So how old would he be today? So Kelly was last seen in February of 1982. That would make him 46 years old today. Certainly a much different picture than that sweet little schoolboy um, that we see on all of the missing persons websites. So February 1982, I mean, I used to live in Tennessee, not too far from Kentucky. That's a cold part of the year. Just tell me about the scene. Where did he go missing and, and what kind of a day was it? So Kelly lived in eastern Kentucky, more specifically Hazard, Kentucky. When you think about this region, think about mountains, deep valleys, lots of back roads. It was coal mining country and was extremely lush vegetation. A fun fact about this area, it's actually the second most diverse ecosystem on the planet. And when you're there, it just feels different. It feels like you're in a different part of the country, especially compared to the more urban areas like Louisville, where I live. So Kelly and his family lived in a trailer, and it was tucked away in a hauler. Haulers are really common in rural eastern Kentucky. And what it means is a single road that goes into a mountain or a valley, and then multiple households actually live off of that road. They settled there a long time ago, and the family just stays, and it becomes known as that family's hauler. Oftentimes, they'll actually be named after the family. And sometimes they can be more than 100 years old. In this case, family from Kelly's family, also some friends, all lived in the same hauler. And there was a gravel road. The mountains surrounded it. They were really tall. And when we visited it, almost 40 years later, it looked like nothing had changed and four decades had passed. I mean, it looked like the structures were all exactly how they had been left, though some of them were obviously abandoned. The trooper who we were with, who took us on the tour, said, that's just kind of how it looks there. And the time of year that Kelly disappeared was February. So you think winter, snow, mountains, certainly a really cold time of year. But it wasn't uncommon for him to, you know, go out of the house and go play. I mean, he's six years old. At the time, we all remember when we were six, you know, we'd be like, okay, we'll see you later, parents. Uh, we're going to go play. So it wasn't uncommon for him to do that? No. His mom told us that he loved to be outside, even on the coldest days of the year. He would go outside and play ball with his friends. If it did get absolutely freezing outside, someone in the holler would force them to come into a house and watch TV or play games inside. And that's kind of what we know about this day, is he begged his mom to let him go outside and play. And she did, but it was really cold. And she thinks that eventually 
He and his friends actually ended up in another house watching TV. At around 4 o'clock on February the 12th, uh, investigators were advised that Kelly Holland Jr. had gone to a neighbor's residence to watch TV with a friend who he was with quite often. And a few hours after that, uh, the family went to check on him at, at that location, at which time uh, they were advised that the child never, never came to the home and those who resided there had not seen him. So tell me about that last time she saw her son. What was the conversation like? What does she remember? Kelly's mom told us that she really didn't want him to go outside, that it was really snowy, it was really cold. She thought it might be a little bit overkill for him to be playing outside, but he begged her, so she said yes. And that was mid-afternoon, a little bit after school time. So he goes out and plays for hours, and she said she remembered telling him that she loved him and buttoning up his coat, getting him ready, and then sending him out the door. And hours later, she says she tried to call him in for dinner and he would not come. Who was he? Was he playing with friends? Do we know who he was with? The mom believes that he was playing with friends. She said it was common for everybody who lived off this little gravel road to entertain themselves. All the kids went out together together. They'd play outside together, watch TV inside one house, and just kind of bop around from house to house. And so she believes that he was with some of his friends. So then night came, right? What happened next? So it gets dark. Obviously, it's dangerous. At this point, he really needs to come home. So she's calling him. She's calling the neighbors. She's looking in the other houses nearby, and she can't find him anywhere. And something that wasn't so uncommon during this time was she didn't have a phone at her house. So she actually had to go find a neighbor who had a phone so that she could call police and tell them that her little boy was missing. That would have been around what time of night? Or was it the next morning? So she tells us that her search for Kelly started around dinner time. She wanted to find him. She went out looking for him. Then, of course, time passes. She searches multiple different houses. She finally finds a phone so that she can call police. By that time, it's pretty late at night. And it was nearing midnight when she actually talked to police for the first time, reporting Kelly as missing. So you have a frantic mother who's now calling authorities, uh, calling people on the same street that she lives on, trying to search for her son, And troopers are also now responding to the scene. What happened next? So it's about 3 a.m. when police are actually getting out to the house where he disappeared, where he was last seen alive. At that point, a trooper was uh, dispatched to that location, and he arrived at around 3 o'clock in the morning on February the 13th. Uh, At that time, the the trooper made contact with the family, with the mother of the missing child who was later discovered to be Kelly Holland Jr., a six-year-old boy uh, who resided on Pine Tree Hollow. And are actually starting to search. Once uh, the trooper had collected uh, initial necessary information, uh, he and the rescue squad uh, searched the area for approximately one hour. And to set the scene that night, it was snowing so hard that the rescue squad, the professionals who were called in in the most extreme circumstances, were having trouble operating. Because it was so dark, it was snowing so hard, and the terrain, the mountains and the trees and the hills, 
all of that was just a recipe for disaster. And they actually had to end the search not long after they started it that night. And due to uh, manpower issues and a uh, heavy snowfall at that time, the search was initially called off. So they, they ended the search, but they picked right back up in the morning. How many days did they search for? We don't know exactly how many days they searched for because record keeping just wasn't what it is today, 40 years ago. What we do know is at least the next day, the rescue squad was back, the street patrol troopers all came in from surrounding areas, and at least 50 volunteers gathered to search the entire area. They had a plan, they knew what they were looking for, and they did. They they went through with this search. Unfortunately, they never found any sign of Kelly. And still had no luck in locating the child. Not even the, the jacket that the mom remembers zipping him up in that had a tear at the bottom. They didn't find any toys he was playing with, anything. According to the records, there was literally no sign of this child. It was like he just fell off the face of the earth. And there was so many people looking for him. It was hard to believe at the time. Judy, say and spell your first and last name for me. Judy, J-U-D-Y, Moore, M-O-O-R-E. Now, a woman with long gray hair, Judy Moore still thinks about that cold February day in 1982 when her little boy pleaded with her to let him go outside and play in the snow. I fixed breakfast, and uh, Kelly kept begging to go outside to play. And I was in the kitchen washing the dishes, and then I put on a pot of soup beans. Just let them cook so long. And uh, I told him, I said, no, you can't go outside, it's too cold. And he kept begging, kept begging. I said, okay, but don't go outside the yard. Judy called her son over to help him put on his winter coat. It's a memory, an image that hasn't faded from her mind in the nearly four decades since. I put on his jacket. Lord help me. It had a terror on the bottom of the zipper. And he hugged me and he said, Mom, I love you. Kelly ran outside and Judy told me that was the last time she ever saw her son. That was uh, around 11 to 11.30 and I was sitting on the bed there, there was a door that faced outside and it had the windows all the way down. And I was sitting on the bed and I was watching him. And uh, then my sister called and I went up Calix to answer the phone. And when I went back, he wasn't in the yard. The searches end in 1982 without any sign of Kelly Holland Jr. Eventually, at some point, the case starts to get less news coverage. The community starts to move on, and the case goes cold. What happens next? Exactly that. Years go by, and Kelly becomes a memory. Initially, I'm sure it had a a very significant uh, effect on the community. A six-year-old child going missing uh, that had to have been... 
uh, very uh, devastating for the, the community and for the county. Uh, again, time has a way of maybe lessening that uh, to, to many. Uh, I think many who were involved, who lived in the area or who were family or friends have, have passed on. But it still has a lingering effect on, on those who initially investigated it. Uh, in, in speaking with them, there, there are moments when, when thoughts of this, uh, this case comes to, and, and it, still, it still has an impact on, on those uh, who were involved. Eventually, like in all missing persons cases, people stop looking. And in this case, I think that there was sadness, but the search had seemingly ended. And then something changed. And the grand jury in this eastern Kentucky community was called on to hear a case about a possible suspect in this case. And this possible suspect is someone we actually talked to. We only know that she was a suspect because she told us she was. Police would not, as they always do, they would not tell us anything about a suspect. They just told us that they had evidence that prosecutors presented to a grand jury and that grand jury decided not to bring an indictment in the case. It was kind of the beginning and the end of any possible criminal charges or criminal justice. There was a, a grand jury investigation that was conducted, but uh, there, there was never anything uh, that led to anyone, whether family or acquaintances, um, being uh, charged or indicted in this case. So it's, it's been a, a longstanding unknown. Well, this is a big twist. You know, for a grand jury to be presented a case like this is a big deal. So who was the suspect? Madison, you won't believe this, but the suspect, the woman who told us she was a suspect, was Kelly's mom. I was just looking at me. Why am I the only suspect? What did I do wrong? She told us that ever since Kelly disappeared, family members, community members, city leaders all believe that she did something to Kelly to make him disappear. And when you asked her about that, what did she say? She was completely straightforward about it with us. She's the one who told us she was a suspect. And when I asked her what people said, what they thought happened, she answered that question. I was told by the police that my sister said that I killed him and she helped me bury him. I don't know if that really happened, but that's what I was told. When I asked her if she had anything to do with Kelly's disappearance, she answered that question too. Lord, no. No way. What was going through your mind as as the journalist covering this case, talking to someone that, that could have had a grand jury come down with an indictment on her being the person responsible for the disappearance of Kelly Holland Jr. I'll tell you, we knew that there was suspicions that family were somehow involved in this case. We had no idea that it was Kelly's mom, the woman who agreed to talk to us about his disappearance, the last woman who saw him alive. We did not know that that is exactly where that interview was going to turn. But she was so open about it and so willing to talk about it, it was an interesting experience. 
You know, we don't typically talk to people who are believed to be suspects of some sense in a crime, just, you know, sitting in a church, which is where we did this interview, just because it was a public place. But, you know, we're not in a jail, we're not in a courtroom, we're just having a conversation with them. And she's telling us that, yeah, people think I killed my kid. It was really interesting. Why do you think so many people think you killed him? I, I don't know, because, uh, I mean, maybe because I was so close to Kelly. They was jealous. I don't know. What would you say to the people who still think you killed your son? I know I didn't kill my son. I didn't do it. And nobody, I wished I knew what did happen to him. All I can say is if anybody, anybody that thinks I killed my son, may God have mercy on them. And now this woman is living her life with a missing child who now would be in his 40s and also with the community looking at her through this lens of having her being a suspect, even though she was never formally charged with anything. You know, we met her in the heart of the small town that she lives in. She seemed very comfortable. She seemed very confident, definitely not in any kind of hiding. But um, she also told us she believes Kelly is alive. I don't believe he's dead. I really don't believe he's dead. And she told us that she wanted to share a message for Kelly. And she looked directly into the camera lens and, and had this message just for her missing son. What was what did she say? Kelly, I love you so much. Just let me know. She said that she loved him and she missed him and she wanted him to come home. If he would only come to me. Say hi, Mom. That's all I'd ask. I wouldn't want nothing else from him. So now, years later, she is, you know, living in the same community and has a lot of people wondering if she ever did this to her son and and no closure, no answers about what happened to him. I mean, that's just got to be such a horrible situation to be in. Absolutely. And and she says it has weighed on her a lot over the years. She said it, it has, she struggled with it emotionally and mentally. And there's no getting over it, Harley. The only thing I've got to help me is the good Lord above. Because it's hard. Very hard. But she has really held on to hope that Kelly is alive. And Madison, you know as well as I do, that's really inc- uncommon in missing persons cases, especially, I mean, we're talking about 40 years here. I don't know many other families who are still holding out hope that their loved one is alive. Most families are holding out hope that they'll find answers one day. And answers can be in the form of so many different things that also can be horrific. So now we're standing here in in 2022, when detectives look at this case file in in their uh, office, what is it labeled as? Is it a cold case still? Is it miss like what is it a missing persons case? What do they say it is? So we know that this is most certainly a cold case. They told us that new tips on this investigation come in few and far between. So this case has not seen a lot of action here in recent years, probably even recent decades. It's interesting. When we talk to detectives about it, he's considered a missing person, 
But then there's these suspicions of a possible murder, or maybe it was just an accident. It's one of those things. It, it's there's still no way to actually, you know, determine that. Uh, I think the officers who initially investigated it uh, had their suspicions that there was more to it than just a disappearance. Unfortunately, there was never anyone to corroborate that or, or uh, to assist in leading them to prove that or disprove it. So, unfortunately for, uh, first and foremost, the family of, of the child of Kelly Holland Jr. and then those uh, who knew him and then those in trying to find him to locate him, uh, there's just never been closure after over 36 years. And they've just never been able to find him or the evidence. But at some point, there was a major tip that came in. Right. Okay, so the case is cold. It's really unclear if they'll ever get another tip on it. And then detectives do get a tip, and it takes them back to that gravel road up in eastern Kentucky, deep into the mountains, where the search for any sign of Kelly is picked up again. What was the tip? What did the caller say? So the tipster in this case had called Kentucky State Police and reported some information about a possible grave. Investigators received information of a possible grave at a uh, residence or the what was left of a residence on Pine Tree Hollow. They said it was on the street where Kelly had disappeared and troopers and detectives swarmed to the area. Uh, several troopers and detectives came to this location, uh, found what uh, they believed was being described as that uh, place of, of the, the grave. This was at one point an incredibly high-profile case, and the possibility of finding answers in it was huge. So detectives and the experts are all there, um, digging. They said it took them several days to excavate this entire area, looking for any signs of a grave or human remains, and they find nothing. But unfortunately, through uh, uh, several hours or days worth of digging and, and excavating, they're unable to locate any any type of um, remains or any clue or instance that there was ever anyone buried there. How much of an operation was this? I mean, are we talking like days, weeks of searching? And at what point did they not find anything? So it's almost like the tip was unsubstantiated. Exactly. I think at the end of it, they weren't sure that they had made any progress or, or had any movement from where they had started. Unfortunately, it was a lot of time spent on something that appeared to be a dead end. But in cases like this, especially one, a missing child, if there was even a possibility that they could have found some sort of answers here, it was something they had to pursue all the way through. So what's what's next? Who lives out there now? What detective work is still being done, if any? Unfortunately, in this case, like so many others in eastern Kentucky, new information is really hard to come by. Many of the people who lived there then still live there today, and they were tight-lipped then. That hasn't changed. I think police believe if a tip was going to come in this case that would change everything, it would have already happened. Uh, but to my knowledge, nothing in, in recent uh, past has, has come forward to assist with uh, locating uh, Mr. Holland now. And furthermore, even if they did get that incredible tip leading them somewhere, it would quite literally be a miracle if the evidence was still there. 
in Kentucky, a forensic anthropologist told me a body and human remains can disintegrate within about seven days just because of the extreme temperatures we have. So 40 years, it'd be really, really tough to find something in this case. It would depend if, if something had been done, if, if the child had been uh, murdered at that time. It, it, a lot of it would depend on uh, how the body was uh, disposed of, if, if it was buried, if it was, um, you know, if it was placed directly in the ground. Uh, in a well or, or if it was, you know, in a box or some kind of means of, of covering, that, that would play a factor. Uh, if, if a body was just left uh, in open air, then, then I, I would imagine that there are probably no chance of, you know, through just decomposition and, and animals, wildlife and so forth, that, uh, uh, that that would make it probably nearly impossible to locate. But uh, a lot of different factors, obviously, with that, that would come into play. Does Kentucky State Police believe that he could still be alive? Uh, that's that's not necessarily, uh, it would be hard to say, but uh, I, I would say the answer to that would be uh, until you know for certain you still have to hang on to that one uh, thread of hope uh, that he could still be alive. Um, with this much time passing, the odds aren't in favor of that, but um, you, you still have to, you have to hang on to that possibility. Is there a reward? Is there any any reason for someone to come forward with a tip that actually could be credible? Unlike so many cases today, there is not a reward from this one. Um, there's, of course, police asking for information, as they do in all of their unsolved cases. But because so much time has passed, I think a lot of the community involvement has really died down and people are paying a lot less attention to this case. Now, what stood out to you, Shay, the most about this case? I know we all take something away from, you know, the cases we cover, but for you talking to his mom and, and being out there, actually being on that road where he was last seen, what stands out to you? Without a doubt, when I think back to this case, the biggest takeaway was the conversation with Kelly's mom, where she talks about the fact that people think she killed Kelly, and she denies it, but says that she thinks maybe, you know, her sister might have outed her. It is so interesting. It's so unlike anything you hear in a day-to-day -day life. But it's also really sad, and it does make you sit back and think, you know, what happened to Kelly? This was a little six-year-old boy, full of promise, a precious little boy, and he's gone. Whatever he could have become, whatever he might have become, if he is out there somewhere, um, it's not the life that he was living down in Hazard, and it's still a sad story. Absolutely, and I know there's some, something that stands out to me is is the, the call that the mom made initially to report him missing. I'd be so fascinated to listen to that call. Have they opened up any evidence they have in this case to you? Is there any way to, you know, go back to those initial moments? You're so right. That would be fascinating to hear. Even just the tone of her voice, exactly what she said. But no, and... Public record law in Kentucky keeps open investigations sealed indefinitely. So and unless 
Kelly is ever found, this will stay an open investigation. So pieces of evidence like that, we will never get to hear. Wow. Well, I have so many, you know, theories running through my head right now, of course. I've covered uh, missing children cases, too, and it's just so heartbreaking because they're so young. And, you know, whether someone kidnapped them or they got lost or something tragic happened, uh, wildlife or murder, every single scenario is horribly heartbreaking to, to run through your own mind. And for no answers, 40 years later, uh, is just really heartbreaking. Definitely. It's a sad case, and it, and it always is. Whenever we, we cover this whole case, we look at every possible lead, all of the evidence we can find, and then in the end, sometimes it feels like you're still at where you began, still just wondering what happened to Kelly Holland Jr. When somebody knocks on my door, it'd be great to open my door. And him say, hi, Mom, I'm home. <laughs> oh, how great that would be. Beyond Bardstown Unsolved is a production of Vault Studios in partnership with King 5 in Seattle, WHAS 11 in Louisville, and ABC 10 in Sacramento. Make sure you don't miss any future episodes by following or subscribing to the show wherever you're listening right now. And to talk about these cases with other listeners, be sure to join our Facebook group, Unsolved Insiders. Beyond Bardstown Unsolved is hosted by me, Shay McAllister, and King 5 anchor and reporter, Madison Wade. Our producer is Reed Redman, and our executive producers are Will Johnson and Brian Weiss. Thanks also to investigative journalist Andrea Ash. Audio mixing is done by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland.